and welcome to the Peaceful Pastures podcast, finding peace in the pastures, spending 10 minutes each day with your shepherd. I am Pastor Daniel Lewig, and this podcast is brought to you by Christ Countryside Ministries, the regional ministries of St. John's Hill Point, Trinity Lime Ridge, and Bethlehem Richland Center. On day two, we capture the context. We recognize our world today is just a little bit different than the world at the time of the Bible. There are customs, practices, idioms, descriptions of locations that are lost on us. On this day, we take the opportunity to explore the context of the portions of Scripture in front of us. But first, let us begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, sanctify us through your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. In the beginning portions of the Gospels, as we get past the introductions, as we look more at, as events begin to unfold, as we turn our attention to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and the ministry of the forerunner, of John the Baptist, there are many practices that are here that if we understand them right away, we will see a much fuller picture of what is being described in the rest of the New Testament, as well as most certainly the Gospels. Let's talk first of the significance of the first sentence of the chapter. Uh, again, as we look at the, the book Evangelion, A Chronological Harmony of the Four Gospels, looking at just the scriptural text as this is put into chronological order, the first sentence of the chapter says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. What is the significance of that sentence? We understand Scripture focuses on salvation history, but it is also a historical document. This is putting the events in real time. This is when it happened. This is what was taking place. This is salvation history. And as God places that salvation into history, we have that in front of us, and it's important not to lose sight of some of those what would be more of minor details, but again, put us in time. And going back to that Galatians passage, when the time had fully come, what is happening here now in this, in this sentence? God is placing salvation into history, into time. And these records that are here, not just at the beginning of the Gospels, recognizing Jesus' birth, the Savior has come into the world, but also just the historical aspect of the setting and context in which salvation is happening. Let's look at some other concepts that are here in our, our reading. Things that are very common, things that we're going to see again and again in the Gospels, and the more we understand them, the better we'll be able to appreciate them. Let's first talk about lambs in Jewish worship life. From Exodus chapter 29, lambs were part of the temple worship sacrifice daily. In fact, twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening, a lamb would be sacrificed as part of the, the temple worship ritual. There's a few perspectives or a few details about these lambs uh, that are important for us to understand. 
Here was God's expectation as he was setting up the worship life in Old Testament times that was still being carried out when Jesus was born and we get into the Gospels and New Testament time. These lambs were not to be leftovers. They were meant to be without blemish. Here's the larger picture. The law's demand of perfection. The lamb must be perfect, without blemish. That was the picture that is being used here. This was also a sacrificial lamb. A sacrifice must be made for sin. And it became very clear in Old Testament worship life and in New Testament worship life, God made it abundantly clear in that picture that as a result of sin, blood must be shed and a price must be paid. The last element of the, the, the lambs that was important for understanding the full picture was the lamb was a vicarious act providing access to God. This vicarious act was, would have to be done by someone else, not the one responsible, but the one through which access to God would be given, through which forgiveness could be found. There are so many New Testament bigger pictures when we understand understand that as we watch Jesus. I mean, we have in our in our lesson, you have John the Baptist pointing, and he's saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, he's talking about specifically the Passover Lamb, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but that picture was not lost on any of the first hearers. They understood completely what that meant. Here's the one who was perfect without blemish. Here's the one that would make that sacrifice for sin. Blood must be shed. A price must be paid. Death must be paid. And a vicarious act that provided access to God. When we put the picture of the lamb to those three key elements to John the Baptist's declaration, making that connection of Jesus as that lamb of God, if we now go to the Good Friday scene of Jesus dying on the cross, what happened in the temple? The temple curtain was torn in two. The temple curtain that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies where God was, where only certain people had access, priests access, only at very minimal times in the year, and only as God granted it. No one was allowed access to the Holy of Holies. If you entered there without permission... You were dead. So the significance of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world dying on the cross, the temple curtain being torn in two, what just happened? Access to God. That's the sacrifice that the true Lamb of God made that gives us access to God. So it's important to understand how lambs were used for centuries in Old Testament worship to New Testament worship understanding the concept of lambs and Jewish worship life to understand that much more what is taking place. Since we no longer live in that context and setting, what would have been second nature for any Jewish person in the first century is lost on us. It's important to understand everything that was taking place and how many lambs were, were used in this process. Again, twice a day, daily, in the temple, this was done. Let's talk about the Passover 
and Jewish worship life. I want you to think about those who lived in Jerusalem and those who didn't live in Jerusalem. The Passover was a pilgrim festival, one of the three festivals in the worship year, one of three that required all Jewish individuals to make their pilgrimage, their trip to Jerusalem, to be there for this specific event. It is there that you were to bring a lamb. So now no longer just at the temple offered by the priests, but now this was every family taking part in a lamb that would be there that you would use for the Passover meal. Again, this goes back to the Exodus at the time period of Moses for the first Passover when God was bringing the tenth and final plague where the angel would come through all of Egypt and anyone who did not have the blood of the lamb over their doorposts of their home, there would be the loss of the firstborn son. But anyone who had the blood of the lamb over their doorposts, the angel would pass over that home and the firstborn would be spared. Hence the name Passover. And this became a key festival in Jewish worship life that God said you would now celebrate annually as a reminder of the Lord's deliverance. It is said that as many as, uh, in in ancient priest writings, it is said that as many as 1.2 million animals could be sacrificed in a single day for the Passover event. So think about those who lived in Jerusalem. All these people gathering around, all of these animals, everything that you could hear, everything that you could see, everything that you could smell that went with this Passover sacrifice. Again, what that lamb did, what the lamb signified, was not lost on anyone there. This was a massive festival that made Jerusalem at the height of its population with all these people there. And think about someone who didn't live in Jerusalem. Think of a a 12-year-old child who is going up to Jerusalem for the first time. Think of everything that they saw. Think of everything that they, they smelled. The experience of the, the journey to, to Jerusalem, the, the lamb, the Passover, the experience. It was not lost on them. And when John the Baptist says, look the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, understand how immersed they were in this and, and what that meant. And now what it means for you and me. Let's take a look at Jesus' use of the word amen. The word amen is a Hebrew word that was just transliterated into the Greek language, used in in the same way. In In the Bible, in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word for amen was used 30 times. In the New Testament, it was used 123 times. Most New Testament usage was by Jesus himself 
and also quoted in Revelation. What was unique about Jesus' use of the word amen was how he would use it at the beginning of a sentence versus the end. So again, this is an old word. This wasn't uh, a word that Jesus uh, was in, that people wouldn't have understood. It's a word that would have been used, especially in connection with Scripture. But Jesus' unique usage and something he made part of his regular speech was using it at the beginning of a sentence. Often the word amen can be kind of an exclamation point at the end. This is true. Uh, if we think in Lutheran circles, it's kind of what, what Martin Luther does at the end of his uh, catechism uh, with the explanation of various things when he says, this is most certainly true. You want a one-word description for that or one-word use of that, it's amen. Jesus used it at the beginning of a sentence. And it has two basic meanings. It means, I tell you the truth, or I guarantee this will happen. Jesus setting the stage for what he's about to say, and it was a very unique way in which it was done, and a very uh, declarative statement, and beginning with an exclamation point versus at the end. In John's gospel, there's he emphasizes uh, when it uh, the twice usage when it is said uh, "Amen, Amen," I tell you, the double emphasis on what Jesus is saying. In Revelation chapter 3, again, another reason why it's important to understand your Bible before going to the book of Revelation to, to understand the full picture of the rich imagery that is there that is that comes from the Old Testament. The three books that quote the New Testament the most are Matthew, Hebrews, and Revelation. So again, the three New Testament books that quote the Old Testament the most, the Gospel of Matthew, the book of Hebrew, and the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is called the Amen. So this rich word has a beautiful picture from Old Testament times to Jesus picking it up, especially in the New, to then that connection that is made often in Revelation of who Jesus is to be that Amen, to be the truth. The final thing we'll take a look at is what did a first century Jewish wedding look like? This is significant to Jesus' first miracle. A Jewish wedding would often take place in autumn. Autumn was the best time for marriages. The harvest was in, the vintage over, minds were free, and hearts were at rest. It was a season when the evenings were cool and delightful, and it was agreeable to sit up late at night. Usually usually the entire village gathered for a wedding. At the beginning of a wedding feast in the evening, the bridegroom, accompanied by his friends, went to fetch his betrothed, the bride, from her father's house. He would wear particularly splendid clothing and sometimes even a crown. A procession was formed under the direction of one of the bridegroom's friends, who often acted as the master of ceremonies and remained by his side throughout the rejoicing. The bride was carried in a litter and in procession. She was beautifully dressed, and along the way, people sang wedding songs that were traditionally known and largely drawn from the Song of Songs in the Bible. The next day was the wedding feast. And once again, there was a general rejoicing and a sort of holiday in the village. There was a meal 
towards the end of the day at which uh, men and women were served and other customs would would take place. So again, often in, in autumn, the beginning of the, the bridegroom going to get his, his bride with his uh, friends at his side as part of that procession. And we also understand who often was the master of the banquet, the master of ceremonies that is referenced in this uh, miracle text as well, would often be the friend, close friend of, of the groom, of the bridegroom, and would always be at his groom's side throughout the, the ceremony, throughout the, the wedding feast, which would often last five to seven days. And again, a holiday for the village. Uh, this became a significant event you could have as many as 500, 600 people attending uh, this event. This was a large celebration throughout the village. So there's a couple of connections to understand here, uh, to better understand the, the event taking place. Number one, just in reference to John, who refers to himself as the friend of the bridegroom who rejoices. Uh, when he helps his disciples understand that his ministry was for this this purpose, as he walked along with the bridegroom. His rejoicing was when the bridegroom reached the bride. And here, he is saying the bridegroom has reached the bride. Jesus has reached. The Savior has reached his people. And so now all he does is rejoice, as that is the focus of everything moving forward. He was the one who was to prepare the way. He was the uh, the friend of the bridegroom who was walking along until the, the bridegroom reached the bride. And so that's the significance of John referring to himself in that way. The second one is understanding why this was such a serious issue to run out of wine. When you consider everything taking place, again, this was a holiday for the village. This was for, for everyone. This was a, a large event that would take place, extremely special beyond uh, the normal things that we consider. And for that to take place for something that goes five to seven days, this would have carried considerable shame uh, to the family for not being prepared for this event. So all of that sets the stage for what Jesus does in that particular miracle. And these are some of the things that we will look at in the next couple of days of our study as well. This wraps up today's podcast. We invite you to join in next time and take the opportunity to share our podcast with someone in your life who could use some peace in the pastures. You can find our podcast on all major podcasting platforms. If you have any questions, feel free to contact us at Christ Countryside Wells, W-E-L-S, at yahoo.com. Our podcast is brought to you by Christ Countryside Ministries, the regional ministry of St. John's Hill Point, Trinity Lime Ridge, and Bethlehem Richland Center. Music used with permission from Koine, part of their soundtrack to Oh That the Lord Would Guide My Ways. You can find their music on iTunes and many other online musical stores. Scripture used in this podcast is from the Evangelical Heritage Version, used with permission from the Wartburg Project. This is Pastor Daniel Lewig wishing you God's richest blessings on your day.